Welcome to Across the Pond. My name's Chris Lawson. I'm joined Across the Pond by Samuel Moni. Say hello, Sam. Hey, Chris. Hey, audience. Hey, listeners. Hey, everybody. It's great to be back. Another episode, another week. We've got a really, really interesting episode this week, and it builds on last week's interview when we featured Arjo Ghosh, a, a great guy who I met 20 years ago. And if you haven't had a chance, then, then do give it a listen, because it was an awesome conversation around really surfing that wave, anticipating change, building a business off the back of it. We're going to have a look sort of back into sort of Arjo's sort of past and, and how that impacted on decisions he took later on in life. But, but in short, Arjo was there at the advent of digital marketing and he anticipated search engine marketing and its role in the future world and put that to good use. He created a business model all around being paid on performance, which was ahead of its time. And X number of years later, he sold it for to Ice Crossing and then later on to Hearst. But one of the things that struck us was the backstory of becoming a successful entrepreneur in the case of Arjo. And it got us thinking, is being a successful entrepreneur nature or nurture? By his own admission, Arjo didn't really have a conventional upbringing and he talks eloquently about how this shaped him, the fact that the school was quite unconventional in the 70s with the children making a lot of the decisions and about how it was quite uncomfortable at the time as you were held to account by your peers, verging on the Lord of the Flies in some respects. And certainly that disruption, lack of structure, independence, being held to account are all factors that come out time and time again when you look at entrepreneurs. But it's interesting to think how much does that childhood beginnings play a part in being an entrepreneur? It was great with that conversation is that he included his life story. And I think throughout this season, you'll actually hear that, that the background and multiple stories of his life, his experiences and the conversations that he's now having with his own kids, his own daughter, and about her career choices and the advice that he's providing her and how things have changed. It's great to see kind of that circle uh, of life, that journey come through, um, the work he does, and also how he's he's innovating and being an entrepreneur now. And, you know, there, there's a number of rags to riches sort of stories out there that glamorizes being an entrepreneur. And, of course, not all the paths of entrepreneurs take that into account, but but one that did strike me was the founder of Paul Mitchell Hair Products. His name is John Paul DeJoria, and he uh, founded it with his co-founder, Paul Mitchell. And he found himself homeless twice, once with his two-year-old son as he pursued his dream. And actually now, now that he's come out the other side of it, he, he really embraces that philanthropic passion. He signed up to the Bill Gates, Warren Buffett giving pledge, giving half of his earnings to try and better the world. But I think... The, the power of the stories like that are immense and there are commonalities in them around early independence, having to grow up quickly for one reason or the other, and stories of sometimes chaos and disruption as well. And perhaps an appreciation of business and entrepreneurship from an early age, that resilience that you might need. So Arja was a great storyteller. He taught us a lot in a short space of time. So we're going to dissect that conversation, reflect on our own experience and uh, really take it from there, aren't we? I think for for us, it's it's a bit of self-reflection on our entrepreneurial journeys. And it was great to be able to sort of relate to that, to the work he was doing as well. And, and there was one aspect which 
I thought really set the team. He talked about at the age of 11 in school assembly where he was asked what he was going to do. And he said, I'm not going to work for anyone else. I'm going to work for myself. And that, I think, is is quite a bold statement at the age of 11. So it, it did get us thinking, do these early childhood experiences of breaking boundaries, challenging convention, do they come out to play later on in life? Yeah, we also just, I'm reflecting again, does the school system really encourage you to be entrepreneurial? If I had said, I'm not going <laughs> to look... I'm not going to work for anyone else. I'm going to work for myself. They would have called me a degenerate and probably given me a detention or something. So <laughs> I think now the idea that that approach is the only approach, hopefully folks in schools and educators are more open to it and there's more encouragement happening at schools. You know, it didn't really happen when I was younger. I went to a state school in the UK, which was open to the local community. And the teachers weren't exactly the most encouraging of non-conventional ideas or suggestions. Some of them, sadly, um, you know, or very few of them that I can remember now were the ones who actually listened to you, the ones who gave you inspiration and the ones who could sort of relate to you in that great way. Again, this is not a, you know, a carte blanche criticism of the education system, but I think now we're seeing different models and different types of schools and different systems that are really helping bring this to life at an early and early age. I, I was on Twitter the other day and one of the people I follow was saying his son interrupted his Zoom meeting to say he's applying for a business loan and he needs some help. And he's like 10 or 11 years of age. And I'm thinking, wow, what a great parent to sort of, you know, foster that entrepreneurial spirit. And his kid is really coming up with the idea and actually realizing they can make it happen at 10 or 11 years of age. Yeah, well, funnily enough, there's a lady called Jodie Cook who who wrote a Forbes article about this. And the premise was that since she started her own agency in about 2011, she'd been fascinated by the influences that create entrepreneurs and co-authored a book called How to Raise Entrepreneurial Kids and a series of children's storybooks called Clever Tykes, which try and develop positive, resourceful, creative behavior in six to nine-year-olds. And Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. And the, the title of a TEDx talk that she's presented is called Creating Useful People. And I, I thought that's a very different angle on, on education and learning. I think the other aspect of that, Sam, is, is around mentors and the, the role that they play as well in terms of you know, people slightly to one side of the education system and, and the impact that that can have on your entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, mentors come in different shapes and sizes. And for me, it's about mentors, sponsors and advisors throughout your life and career that can give you different perspectives and guidance that is truly designed to nurture you versus some other agenda. So they they could be teachers, they could be religious leaders, it could be someone if you're into music or arts or drama, people in the community, parents of other kids that you know who do different professions and, and sort of follow your passions. And so for me, it was just reflecting back that there are these these different roles that you have from an early age, but continue throughout your life and career. Mentors are the ones who kind of give you the good, bad and ugly. They're the people who you go to, you can really answer discrete career questions and they give you specific tailored advice. And that means you have that respect and trusted relationship for them to really be open and honest with you and give you the good, the bad and ugly back. So you can tell them the truth and they can hold you accountable to the truth, but it's specific to you. And it's advice. They really know you well enough to, to, to earn trust and also vice versa. Another role is a sponsor. 
And their role as a sponsor is really to use their internal political and social capital to move you forward in the organization, to get you that promotion. If it's four or five candidates, they say, yes, it's Chris or yes, it's Sam or whoever. They, 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 they go to bat for you. They fight for you. They advocate for you in a proactive way. And they've got your back to help push you ahead and help to propel you. And then advisors are another group of people who provide expert insight and advice, and they can answer discrete questions, but they're not going to give you deep advice across your whole career. So those are three things to have in mind to bring this to life throughout your life career, entrepreneurial or not, mentors, sponsors, and advisors. And I think it's worth saying is that they they don't have to be with you through the whole journey as well. You know, quite often I find I've sort of dipped into different types of mentor or sort of advisor at different points and and it's been incredibly valuable. And it is interesting that certainly my experience of talking to entrepreneurs that is a growing point to make sure you've got that reflection, that outside in view, someone that you can sort of hold a mirror up to you and make sure you're doing the right things. Yeah, and a quick a quick build on that is the concept of reverse mentoring, where I've seen this a lot now where you have people who are more junior or perhaps younger who are mentoring older people. And really it's that idea that you can learn from anyone, you can learn from everyone, and you can learn from people who are perhaps less experienced in terms of um, t- amount of time on this planet, but absolutely bringing things to the table and expertise, perspective, in their community, their audience, their consumer group, the way they see the world, the technologies they use. So often that reverse mentoring plays a, an awesome role in entrepreneurial life. As we move on to more of what RJ was talking about, it kind of hit on the themes of risk, reward, failure, and learning that's coming to fruition now. There's a lot of emphasis on navigating your own path and speaking your own truth and really actually doing entrepreneurship versus maybe thinking about it. And I'm a huge fan of opportunities equally to learn and study how to do it, right? So there is opportunity to learn from academe as well as a practitioner approach. And it's something that you can study and intellectually talk about, but you have to really bring it to action and make it happen. And when I think of recent experiences, it makes me think of Patrick Murphy. He's a professor that I met at the DePaul University in Chicago, and he's now um, professor at the University of Alabama in entrepreneurship. And what he did so well, he, he did some great collaborative efforts, social enterprise. So the students and practitioners and um, adjunct instructors and business leaders and entrepreneurs were all coming together and he was raising funds, training instructors, consulting the entrepreneurs, the strategic alliances that brought in the students who could then launch their own entrepreneurial ventures. So for me, it helped with my continuous learning journey of how to stay in the game and learn the latest and greatest techniques and be up up to speed with entrepreneurship in the more modern era and that's so important because the stakes are so high when being an entrepreneur there's so much at risk isn't there in terms of cash flow is such a significant factor we covered that in previous episode before and and just what you're investing into it you know it's your whole life isn't it yeah i I think doing it i just recall my wife and i we opened our women's apparel retailer boutique larue she had an idea did the research and we followed through with that and versus her sticking with a corporate career that was more common and expected for her, for her and her peers. I was still in corporate and had to balance doing both. 
and the lessons learned from that are being applied to what we're both doing now in our careers. And again, I've kind of gone back to the entrepreneurial side again. And we talked a, a lot about the characteristics of this in episode 38, em- embracing your entrepreneurial ethical spirit. I've got some buddies who have founded The Soulful Project. You can go and find them online, thesoulfulproject.com. It's a brand and company that's created wonderful experience of product lines of hot cereals and instant oatmeals and granola products. But they were employees at Campbell Soup with me at the time. They were led by Chip Heim and Megan Shea. And they do some research. They're meeting with families in Texas to learn about their food and, you know, just their life. And they were on their way to a family uh, and they just said, okay, let's just go into one last home and do some research with this family. So Chip and Megan are there and they're they kind of saw that the neighborhood needed some support. It's a poorer neighborhood. They walked in and there was no food in the pantry, zero food in the house. And as they started talking to the resident, it was all about how she struggled to feed the family and how they're having a hard time. The team come back to the office and do nothing for a year with that information. A year later, they're, they're in another home doing some research, a similar situation. They thought, what are we doing? And that led them to founding the the Soulful Project. So for me, it was a great realization that after a year, you experience the same thing. The, the entrepreneurial spirit kicked in. We need to do something about it. And that's what led to launching the Soulful Project. And they've got national distribution uh, across the US. And you buy one and you give one, which goes to a local food bank. And they've got distribution in a, in a bunch of different retailers. And I'm really proud of the efforts they did to form a, a, a public benefit company and really be entrepreneurial when they had a cushy corporate job. And again, some of those characteristics that we hear a lot of the time about resilience, thinking outside the box, agile thinking also come to mind there. But one one thing that struck me about Arjo as we talked through was about being first and anticipating trends. So Spanabooks was really early days search engine marketing until it got taken over by iCrossing. But Arjo talks about how he wrestled with the business model for developers, which basically meant that you had to put all the effort in upfront before seeing results, and how he moved Spannerworks and looked at SEO and moved it to paid for results. And what he did to help formulate some of these views was look at the Google IP to see what was coming down the road. And if we challenge ourselves, do we really do that effectively, that future trend piece, that early warning system? And most importantly, do we just think about it rather than actually getting on and doing it? And the the trend that I saw that, again, has really sort of shaped my life, really, was around email marketing and sort of seeing how that was starting to have such a great big impact. And that led me on to digital marketing as a career choice. But now it's really understanding that marketing is very much following what tech is doing Mm -hmm. in moving from an in-source to a freelance virtual support model, Mm -hmm. which is why I founded Moreno Marketing. Yeah, that's so smart, catching on that trend. I mean, on my side, I'm still bitten by the bug as well and uh, co-founder Um, CI squared, which is communication through storytelling. We're a behavior change company and and similar to you, seeing a huge factor of how communication is so fundamental to everything we do. There's a lot of miscommunication, misunderstanding and disagreement happening in the world around us, in the world of work and on a personal level. And so we help people really unlock their ability to connect, understand and inspire people through communication. And and we use storytelling to help do that. Uh, And so that entrepreneurial spirit is coming through in that venture that I'm up to now. But I'm looking at my network and I talked about some former colleagues when I was at Campbell. And now I'm seeing colleagues 
starting up their own ventures. There's a company called True Places by a, um, a great colleague called Nelson Worley. He's co-founded it with another guy, Ben Knepler. And again, there's something to how the corporate experience actually, I think, translates into the entrepreneurial world. So for a lot of our listeners there, they're probably thinking, hey, this is not for me, but actually probably is for you. Because if you're a co-founder there's uh, of, of a business, it's about finding a partnership, an alliance with someone who may have an initial thought, an idea, but then you can bring perspective in terms of how to handle vision and how to build a vision. You you know, managing and working with risk, strategy to see market opportunities and product opportunities, the business planning, recruiting and retaining people, managing customers and revenue, the KPIs and, and financial. So there's a lot of experiences that are value add. And of course, the skills of business leadership, I talked about communication uh, and problem solving and that subject matter expertise that you bring. So don't just think about going it alone. Um, and from one, one and a half from me and listening to Arjo is that there's a power in bringing what you have to the entrepreneurial space. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how about this for a vision? Our goal was to take the entire design ecosystem, integrate it into one page, and then make it accessible to the whole world. That, that sounds pretty audacious, doesn't it? Mm. So Melanie Perkins is the 32-year-old co-founder and CEO of Canva, a free-to-use online design platform. And and she started the company in Australia in 2013 in a bid to make design accessible to all, which, again, is a a great ambition, and she's certainly sort of fulfilling that. She's now one of the tech's youngest female CEOs, and more importantly, is that the, the tenacity in terms of the approach that she took to actually get this set up is amazing. One of the things that struck me when I was sort of reading about it was that she was at a conference in 2010 in Perth, and she met a Silicon Valley investor, a guy called Bill Tai, and he invited her over to San Francisco to pitch her idea. And, and she got on a plane and she went over there and she pitched it. And hours later, he opened up his address book and connected her with a whole load of contacts. And then she was able to start fulfilling her vision. Now, the fascinating thing for me, I think, is when you look at that story and you think that clarity of vision, that tenacity, but less than a third of tech-based startups have a female founder. The team is now 700 strong and and going very, very strong as well. But it puts a lot of pressure on yourself and and I think it's interesting to reflect on why only a third of the startups are actually sort of have a female founder. Well, what two people better qualified to talk about that than two guys on a podcast <laughs> and mansplain why it doesn't happen. But be honest, let's get candid. You know, we need to be as inclusive as possible in this space and realize the real challenge is that there is real under underinvestment and lack of investment in female founders. I'm reminded of the work at Backstage Capital, which is led by a black woman called Arlen Hamilton, very vocal, and she's been calling out the industry for years now about the lack of inclusion and also the fact the industry just doesn't fund minority or female founders. But she's actually doing something about it. And I've been learning a lot about the Female Founders Fund. I think Goldman Sachs did some research and they've shown that one of the fastest ways to accelerate change and effectively begin to address the racial wealth gap is to listen to and invest in black women. Um, They've got a black womenomics research they've done focuses on the wealth gap, its relationship with economic disadvantages and public and private investment opportunities to close these gaps. And so a lot of folks may roll their eyes and think, oh, yeah, yeah, you're banging on. But there's more data and evidence. There's something called the daughter effect and venture capital firms at which 
senior partners had more daughters and sons, they hired more women partners. And guess what? They performed better than their competitors. And so the argument that data is indicating that if the typical venture capital firm increased the fraction of female partners by 10 percentage points from the average eight that it is currently, i.e. from you know eight to 18, that's 23.2 billion additional dollars being raised. And so, as I say, the daughter effect is not just a nice to have, it actually is shown to increase performance. So the funding women and, and really employing and advocating for women throughout the ecosystem is clearly a win and a business positive, but also societal positive impact. Absolutely, Sam. And, and you get to that point of why are you really in it as well? You know, what, what, what is driving you as a founder, as an entrepreneur? And, and once you think you have the answer, you have to ask again, no, why are you really in it? And it's interesting as you strip away yourself and your motives you get to this core part of being an entrepreneur in itself, which is about asking questions. There's a great bit in the interview where Arjo talks about questions and he was speaking specifically um, a story about talking with his daughter and he doesn't really think about retaining knowledge because it's more about the power of asking questions of other people to uncover that. And entrepreneurs are really great at doing that. And we talked about the power of questions in episode three of this of this podcast, uh, Marketing Transform Tips, Tricks and Hacks. And we talked a lot about that. So go back, definitely check that out. And I, I personally found the power of asking questions. And one of the one of my favorite ones is asking people, hey, what's on your hard drive? What's on your PC? Or what's in your filing cabinet that no one else knows about? And you'll be amazed to find what you learn. There's a buddy of mine. He's called Michael Salbert. He showed me this innovation he was working on. And I thought, oh, that's okay, that's not bad. And I said, what else you got? No one knows about. And he proceeds to tell me a story. He was baking with his daughter. They were cooking. They were using a mixer and they had to pour things in from the side of the mixer, stand mixer. And his daughter said, why do we have to keep pouring it from the side? Can't we just keep pouring it from the top? And he stopped, he thought about it. And he said, why not? Long story short, he, he patents this idea, creates this innovation, and now it's in market. It's called the Ovation Mixer. And it's just an awesome um, fact to know that that really came from the question that his daughter asked, and he acted on it. And so there's this idea of propelling questions that challenge the status quo. It's uh, how might we question, and we kind of respond to that, we can if. And those solutions flow from asking great propelling questions. There's a couple of resources out there. There's a great book. It's called A Beautiful Constraint by Mark Barden and Adam Morgan. And another great book by um, a guy called Warren Berger. It's called A Book of Beautiful Questions. And I love the fact he calls himself a questionologist um, as a profession. And so there's lots of resources that you can, you can use in order to ask better questions. Yeah, I think we've reflected on that in previous episodes about the the skill that it takes to ask a decent question. And uh, you know, it's, it's something you have to push yourself on, isn't it? Yeah. And a quick last point, the, the, when we were talking with Arjo, he talked about, I think, the, well, I think the best question he asked is, and it was very reflective, um, is this right for me? And this is in context that he said, basically, I now turn down a lot of panel invitations. I always challenge them to say, haven't you got a woman that can do it instead of me? Um, and that's one way that we can start to make change happen, that we disrupt our own comfort. So I love the fact that he's asking himself the question, really, which is projecting onto um, things like speaking opportunities he gets. And that's just a simple way that you can use your power to help others and to 
address some of the challenges that we, we talked about, the lack of inclusion and representation, um, especially in the entrepreneurial space that we talked about earlier. And I think that was something else when we're reflecting about characteristics of entrepreneurs. It's about self-belief, but that is different to self-interest. But it is possible to do this without putting all yourself into it. You know, one, one of the one of the interesting things when we were talking to Arjo was there was a very strong sense of self in there, but actually a selflessness as well, actually, when you were looking at some of the things that he was doing. But he was the first to admit that it absolutely took 24 hours, 365 days to actually put yourself into it. And it's really interesting when you look at the impact that it can have on your life and your mental well-being. There's a good article um, called How to Be an Entrepreneur and Protect Yourself from Divorce. And there's also a, a really interesting article by Sifted, which is about the unsung heroes or wives and the families that support you mm. right from the start. And what is fascinating, if you think about those two points, you think about Mackenzie Bezos and the role that is well documented in terms of setting up Amazon, but importantly, what she's done since and how she's taken her share of the, the profits and, and the, the good causes that she's put towards it. So that idea of what next, where you go from there, how do you re-energize that difficult second album, I think is a really important one, let alone how do you let the younger generation come through, which was a key point Arjo was talking about. So, Sam, time is getting on. It's uh, been a great episode. We could carry on, but I think we should try and bring it to a close. So, Do you want to talk to us about the three key takeouts and reflection of this session? Sure. The first one I'd say is check in with spouses and partners. We just kind of echoed that point. All your mentors and sponsors. This is not to be siloed. Don't go it alone. There are other people in your life, loved ones in the network that you should have relationships with and, and continue to, to be mindful of that. Secondly, challenge your motives. Is there a deeper sense of purpose or motivation behind this, this endeavor, this idea, this innovation that you're looking to bring to life? Thirdly, ask difficult or propelling questions. The best entrepreneurs do that eloquently and persistently. So next week, we have an interview with Yin Rani, a fascinating lady who's gone from agency side to client side to consultant and now looks after the interests of an £18 billion industry. She describes herself as a student at marketing and it's riveting to find out how she continues to learn. You should definitely tune in. You're going to learn a lot. and We certainly did. Absolutely looking forward to that episode, Chris. It's going to be another corker. And as I usually sign off, without further ado, have a great week across the pond. So if you're an entrepreneur, rising star or CMO looking for new ideas, find us at marketingtransform.com and on Spotify, Apple, Google and all good podcast platforms.